Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all here. Um, one of the things that, that John didn't say, uh, it wasn't in my, my board, but I'm, I'm actually, uh, I live here in Catonsville. So I, I had a five minute commute. So pretty, pretty nice. Well, it's good to see you all here today. Um, several years ago, I actually spoke at one of the Grace Life campuses downtown. Uh, I mean, it was years ago. Uh, my beard was black then, I had hair, so uh, I have no idea where it was or when it was, but uh, at some point in time I was there. So as John said, I was um, a pastor for over 20 years. 16 of those years were at a church that I planted in Ellicott City. So I started that church in 2005. It was part of the, the uh, State Baptist Network. Um, and so we were part of that church for several years and then God called me into uh, full-time uh, education, uh, higher education. And so I made that transition in 2021 and now I teach pastors and I also teach at uh, UMBC and Stevenson as, as John said. Um, so today I'll be preaching from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. This is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7. If you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it is a sermon that Jesus preached, guess where? On a mountain, hence the very creative name, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but he preached this sermon, and I like to look at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus's manifesto on kingdom citizenship. So a manifesto is something that we lay out kind of uh, our standards, our values, our expectations and when we say kingdom I'm referring to the kingdom of God and when I say citizenship I mean members of this kingdom citizens of this kingdom privileged with all the benefits that come with the kingdom of heaven so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto on the kingdom it tells us who a disciple is and what a disciple must do so what's a disciple? Kids, do you have any ideas what a disciple is? How, how many of you children have heard the word disciple before? You, you have. You, a follower. I like that. That's really good. A follower. Yes. So another word that we could use is apprentice or maybe even intern, someone who is interning under someone else. Those are some words. Well, a disciple is a person in scripture, according to uh, what we see there is a person who's responded to Jesus's offer of salvation and they've received that gift and as you said and what's what's your name what's his name what's your name Micah Micah and as Micah said now that person is following Christ following Christ they choose to live their life for Jesus so this is um, a manifesto on discipleship the first several verses of the Sermon on the Mount uh, are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. And you'll recognize these by the word blessed or in some translations, happy, although I like the word blessed better. Um, and the word blessed just simply means these are the people who have the character qualities or that internal reality of the kingdom. So for instance, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 3, we read this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right off the bat, at the very beginning of his sermon, Jesus says, blessed are you 
if you don't have it all together. Blessed are you if you are spiritually bankrupt. You're at the end of your rope spiritually. So he begins the Sermon on the Mount with these Beatitudes which focus on who a disciple is, that being aspect. And then he transitions to the doing. So when I teach world religions, uh, I, I always start with the most ancient religion on earth that is still around, which is Hinduism. And I move from Hinduism into Buddhism, and then I go to the monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And when I get to Christianity, I compare grace with karma. And I take the time there to say, well, with karma, as with most religions, it is obey this and then you'll be accepted. Obey this and then you'll be rewarded. But grace is the other way around. You're accepted because of what Christ has done and now you obey. We don't work ourselves into acceptance. Christ has done it all. And once we are changed by that grace, now we obey him. And it's the same way with the sermon. The Beatitudes focus on the being, and then Jesus transitions to the doing. So our text today is going to be verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5, and it's right after these, this being statement. 13 to 16 is kind of like this time of year. It's a transition. Right now, people are going back to school. It's kind of cool-ish in the morning and at night, and then it's insanely hot during the day. It's a transition time. It's the same with verses 13 through 16, from being to doing. So there's a mixture of, of both here. So I'm going to read our text for us, and then I'll pray, and then I'll unpack it for us, okay? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, "'You are the salt of the earth.'" But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of being able to read it, to hold it in our hands, to see it with our eyes, to receive it with our ears. You have revealed it to us. And so today, Lord, we look to you as our teacher. We ask that you would open the word in our hearts and give us ears to hear it and eyes to see it, a will to respond to it. And so for that to happen, we need your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your empowering grace today. And I ask that you help me today to uh, proclaim your word. Uh, and I ask, God, that you would make me uh, receptive to your word as well today. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen. So in our text today, Jesus, in the midst of this manifesto on kingdom citizenship, is talking about how to live in the world here as an alien, a sojourner, a stranger, 
Someone perhaps even with dual citizenship, citizen of kingdom of heaven and citizen of this world. And so what he's doing here today is he's talking about his disciples, and this is the main point of my sermon. It's what I believe we see in this text. Jesus calls his disciples to be agents of gospel purity, healing, and hope in the world. Purity, healing, and hope in the world. So there are two things in our text that God gives to you and to me as agents of gospel purity, healing, and hope in the world. And the first of these is a new identity, a new identity in Christ. We see this expressed in two ways. The first is we are the salt of the earth, the salt of the earth. Um, There are many uses of salt. Uh, Some of you probably use some salt today, right? I, I had some eggs this morning, so I used salt on those right? We, we put some salt on some things. Salt had many purposes in the ancient world, many uses. One of those was to preserve meat. How many of you like beef jerky? Anybody? You can raise your hand. Yeah, I do too. Well, beef jerky is cured, right? It is uh, dried and preserved so that it doesn't uh, carry any kind of really bad bacteria or anything like that. Um, and it's done this way with salt, Another usage of salt is that it hydrates us. So uh, years ago when I was a student pastor, I took our students to a beach. And we had um, you know, this kind of camp going on and there was this competition for basketball. And so some of our students were playing basketball in this. And one of our students was just pounding that water, right? And he was just sweating because it was outside and it was hot and everything. Well, that night he got insanely sick and we had to call the paramedics and what we found out the hard way is that yes you can drink water but that doesn't necessarily hydrate you if you're losing your electrolytes so you need salt or you need some kind of way of putting back those electrolytes inside of you and salt in the ancient world served that purpose it was rarely used to enhance the flavor of food and this is because it was so rare It was so rare, in fact, that soldiers were often paid in salt. Go fight this battle, and we'll give you a pound of salt. It was that rare. In the Old Testament, we find religious purposes for salt. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 35, salt was used at the altar of God. It was seasoned. The altar was seasoned with salt so that the the gift that was Put there the offering would be pure and holy in leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 grain offerings at the altar were always offered with a little bit of salt this precious mineral in second kings chapter 2 verse 21 there's this story outside of jericho where people were drinking water and getting poisoned by it and so elisha the prophet i like him because he was bald elisha the prophet comes in right And he throws salt into the stream and it cures the stream. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, we find this really interesting understanding of salt. Uh, In the ancient world, newborn babies were rubbed with salt. And the reason why they were rubbed with salt is because it would prevent infection. It cleaned them. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, Yahweh, God, says to Jerusalem, he says, you're like a newborn baby that was never rubbed with salt. 
you're impure, you're diseased, you're unclean. So what we can see from the Old Testament is that salt was this purifying agent. It was this agent that was used to make things holy, and that's the context of what Jesus has in mind. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are agents of purity and preservation in the world. So what does this mean? Well, it means on, on one, one level, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, disciples, we wage battle against sin in our own hearts and our lives. We pursue purity within our own soul and our lives. It also means, as disciples, that we wage war against the powers of darkness outside of us and around us, those unseen powers of darkness that change the hearts of men and bend us towards the sinful nature that we have. As salt, it also means that we work for justice and reconciliation in our communities, in our sphere of influence. We seek purity there. This is who you are. In the Bible, being precedes doing. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, please become the salt of the earth. He says, as a kingdom citizen, you are the salt of the earth. Salt doesn't become salt because it prevents decay. Salt prevents decay because it is salt. You don't become the salt of the earth by battling sinful behaviors within, spiritual powers of darkness without, and injustice in the world. You don't become salt by doing those things. You do those things because you are salt. Jesus begins with the identity. Who you are is manifested by what you, in what you do. Who you are is manifested. It's shown in what you do. So the first identity that Jesus gives us is salt of the earth, and the second is the light of the world, the light of the world. To understand what Jesus means by this, we need to understand that he is the true light of the world, capital L, light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world that was prophesied in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so the question is, well, what is this light that has illuminated darkness? And as we follow through chapter 9, we ultimately come to verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this light that illuminates the darkness is a child that is born, a son that is born, born of the will, will of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ultimately, that child is Jesus, 
born of Mary, Jesus, the eternal Son of God. So Jesus is the light of the world prophesied in Isaiah. Jesus is the light of the world that the Apostle John speaks about in John chapter 3. A very well-known passage. Children, you probably know this passage. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's great. That's the part that we all know, but it continues. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. There it is. The light that was prophesied in Isaiah, it has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. John says, that light that illuminates the darkness has come. But we love the darkness. In fact, he says in verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus is the capital L light of the world prophesied in Isaiah, spoken of in John 3, the light who comes, the light who redeems us and saves us from sin, the light who gave his life for us. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus declares that he is the light. In verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you ever walked in the woods at night? Anyone done that? Walked in the woods at night? No one? Some of you are like, no, no way. So when I was growing up, my uh, parents would not let me see really scary movies. In fact, the scariest one I I saw, I think, was Little Shop of Horrors. That kind of gives you a little idea of like how scary things were for me. Not really scary at all. So when I went to uh, summer camp for the first time, and I was walking down these trails in the dark, with my friends, they would all huddle around me and stand behind me because they were terrified of what might be out in the woods because they watched all these horror movies. And I was like, what, it's just crickets? You know, just walking around with my flashlight. But it's that kind of idea of illuminating the light, following the light. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's kind of that idea of the person who is not afraid of the dark because there's nothing out there. No boogeyman, nothing's going to get you. But it's much greater with Christ, right? He is the true light. He has conquered darkness. He has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And so we follow him with nothing to fear. Jesus is prophesied as the light, spoken of as the light, and he declares he is the light. As the light of the world, Jesus brings hope and healing in salvation. Amen? Yeah, amen? Some of you say amen? Okay. There we go. What does it mean that we are the light of the world? Lowercase l. What does that mean? It means we're messengers of the hope and healing in the true light, Jesus Christ. 
We declare it. There are two truths in our text that help us to see this. The first uh, truth about light in general is that it, it illuminates darkness. It reveals what's there. You go into a room, you turn on the light, and you can see what's there. Anyone who's had children, when you stumble into that room at night when the baby's crying or whatever, and you're sleep-deprived, half zombie, half human, and you come in there and you step on stuff, you wish you had turned the light on, but you know if you turn the light on, the kid's going to wake up even more, right? So it's like one of those catch-22 things. Have you ever been in pitch black, like complete darkness? I'm not talking about, yeah, I went outside in Frederick. I mean, it was completely dark. Have you ever been there? Years ago, I went and visited a cave. Um, I, I didn't just like go visit a cave. We were touring one of those really big caves like in Virginia, Luray Cavern, Caverns or something like that. We were going down into this cave and the person was taking us down there. Our big group was down there and they said, okay, everyone hold on to the railing so that you have something to orient yourself. We're going to turn the lights off. And they said, this is the darkest it will ever be in your life because there is no natural light here. And so they turned the lights off, and it was dark. And they said, now everyone put your hands together and rub them. And as you rub them, the static electricity will illuminate the cavern. And so you could hear all around us this. And then you can hear the, the guide laughing, saying, no, that's not true. I just wanted to see if you would do it. <laughs> oh, come on. Then they turn the lights back on, and you can see, right? Pitch black. That's the state of our soul apart from Christ. That's the state of the world apart from Christ. Pitch black. Darkness should not surprise us when we see it. We grieve it. We're angered and saddened by it, but it should not surprise us. But Christ illuminates that darkness. And how does this happen? How does he illuminate that darkness through us, the light of the world? When you go out and you look at the moon, and right now it's like a sliver of a fingernail of a, of a moon, there's not much there, but if you've ever been outside when the moon is full, it illuminates everything. One of my favorite experiences is going out when it snows. Do you remember when it used to snow here in Maryland, like three years ago? When you go out and it's like there's a full moon and there's snow on the ground, and it's almost like day, because all of the the snow is reflecting the light and the moon is shining, but it's just beautiful. The moon doesn't produce light, does it? It's just a gray rock. The light comes from the sun. So the sun shines this powerful light that bounces off the moon and illuminates the earth. You and I are like the moon. We don't generate light. We reflect the light of Christ. He shines on us his righteousness and holiness, and we reflect that back to the world. And in that way, we are the light of the world. It's not our light to shine. It's his light. And by reflecting that light, the world sees and catches a glimpse of who Christ is. Light illuminates darkness. It reveals what's there. And secondly, light dispels darkness. You only have to have a small light to dispel darkness, don't you? I mean, it could be a match. It could be a small LED. It could be just anything. It, it lights up and it dispels the darkness. It pushes the darkness away. It doesn't have to be large. 
In the same way, when we begin to reflect the light of Christ as the light of the world, it dispels darkness around us everywhere we go. You may not feel like the light of the world today, but you are, and as you reflect the light of Christ, you dispel the darkness around you. So the first thing God gives to me in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount is a new identity, salt and light. And the second thing he gives to us, gives to me, is a responsibility, a meaningful responsibility. We see this in four ways. First, God gives a meaningful responsibility to myself. He gives me a meaningful responsibility to myself. In verse 13, we read this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you slow down and you read scripture and you just kind of really sit with it, you begin to get some questions sometimes. What does it mean salt loses its saltiness? How many of you have ever scratched your head about that one? Just kind of, what? Anybody? Salt losing its saltiness? What does that mean? I have a water bottle here. If I were to take some salt and put it into this water bottle and shake it up, has the salt lost its saltiness? No. What happens if I drink it? Right? It's salty. It's still there. I can't see it. It's been dissolved, but it's still there. What does it mean that salt loses its saltiness? Some of you are... Um, uh, those, those of you who have majored in sciences or studied chemistry or biology and you know salt is the, that has the chemical formula of sodium chloride, NaCl. So if you change that chemical composition, you no longer have salt, right? You have something else. But that's not what Jesus has in mind because modern chemistry did not exist then. And so the people that Jesus was speaking to would not understand that Jesus was saying something like, when you change sodium chloride into something else, it's no longer salt. They didn't have that in mind. What does he mean? Well, I said I live a few minutes away. Let's say after this, I invited you over to my house. I'm not inviting you over to my house, by the way, but let's say I did, and you came over, and I, I prepared a meal for you, and I passed you the salt shaker, and you're getting ready to put it onto whatever it is that I prepared for you. And I said, wait, 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 right before you put that on there, I just need to, I need to disclose something to you. In that salt shaker, I put 20 grains of sand. And I shook it up, and then I gave it to you. You're welcome to use it. What would you do? Have you ever been to the beach and gotten sand in your mouth, and, and, it, and you chewed on it or whatever? It is not pleasant, is it? It's a tiny rock. That's what sand is. It doesn't dissolve. But what happened to that salt shaker? It's lost its saltiness. It is impure. It's corrupted. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Now we understand what he means. Salt that is corrupted with something else is useless. It can't be used. You wouldn't rub that on a newborn baby because it would injure the baby. You wouldn't put that in your food because it would break your teeth or injure your teeth. You would cast it out. 
So the meaningful responsibility that I have to myself is to pursue purity. To pursue purity, saltiness. How do you slow the devastating effect of sin in the world? The first way is you pursue purity in your own soul, in your own life. You are the salt of the earth. Accept responsibility to be an agent of gospel purity in your own life. The second meaningful responsibility Jesus gives me is a meaningful responsibility to, the, to my sphere of influence. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. That word for house there is the Greek word oikos. How many of you have heard of oikos? Maybe you've had oikos yogurt, right? You've had house yogurt, right? That's what oikos is. It means household. Household just simply means everyone that you are responsible to and everyone you are responsible for. Everyone you're responsible to and everyone you're responsible for. So in the ancient world, uh, a place and time when people really didn't move around too much, you are responsible to your family, your immediate family, those who lived with you in your household. So this could be grandma, it could be great-grandma, and your village. Today, your oikos, your household, con consists of your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, your sports league, this church, and anywhere where you live, work, and play. It's people you're responsible to and responsible for. It is your responsibility to take the basket off of you and to illuminate that oikos. It's not the government's responsibility to shine the light of Christ. God has not given Pastor Phil the responsibility to shine the light of Christ in your oikos. That is your responsibility. So how do you develop a meaningful life? You accept your responsibility as an, an agent of gospel healing and hope. First, for meaningful uh, responsibility to yourself. And second, meaningful responsibility to your oikos, your sphere of influence. And thirdly, a meaningful responsibility to the world. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. There's a personal implication to this. That personal implication is take the basket off your head. Jesus says no one lights a candle or a lamp and puts a basket over it. So you shine. It's not like the new moon, which is completely dark. It's the full moon, which is completely bright. You shine. You get out of the salt shaker and you salt the earth. There's also a corporate or congregational implication. Jesus says you are a city on a hill. You by yourself are not a city. You know that, right? But right here, look around. Take a minute and look around. Look around, everyone. There you go. There you, look around. You can. This is a city, isn't it? It's a city. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. When we bear responsibility together and we seek God's vision for our church and we together shine the light of Christ, we illuminate all around us. God has given us a meaningful responsibility to the world and lastly, to himself. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and listen to this, 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not give glory to you, not say you're a great person, wow, look at what your church is doing. Give glory to the Father. Responsibility to Him. When the world sees the good works of salt and light, it glorifies God. So let us do the good works of the Father through the power of Christ. If you desire meaning in your life, spend the rest of your days living out your identity as salt and light and the responsibilities God has given to you. Jesus calls his disciples to be agents of gospel purity, healing, and hope in the world. Let's pray. In this moment now, I ask that you close your eyes, bow your heads, and I'd like for you to respond to the Lord however he might be leading you. In particular, in this moment, ask yourself this question, what is my next step? You might want to just simply breathe a silent prayer out to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please reveal to me how I am to apply your word today. Maybe your next step is to believe and then to live out your identity in Christ. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Maybe your next step is to take responsibility for your purity. Maybe your next step is to light up your household, your sphere of influence with the gospel. Perhaps your next step is to begin or to resume or to step out in faith and try something new, doing the good works of the Father through the power of Christ so that the Father is glorified. What is your next step? Father, in this time, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us how we are to take this word, to not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it. Give us your grace that we might live this truth out, to be salt, to be light, to be on mission for and with you in this world. I thank you for Grace Life Church. I thank you for the leaders here. I thank you for the teachers, the servants, and everyone who in many different ways supports the ministry and the mission of this church body. I ask your blessing upon this city on a hill. I ask that you would illuminate this church, shine brightly through this church, and in that process that you would make this church an agent of purity, hope, and healing in this world. We thank you, Father, for your word and for your goodness. We pray in the strong and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.